Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us, and music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of a dream. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right, yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Could have run that as the open. Great to have you with us here on Cinephile once again. I am your host, Adnan Verk. Dan stands at Rick Passmore in the big chairs along with us. I forgot to get a blurb here. That's why I'm trying to stall here for a second. But let me tell you about this one movie that we're going to be reviewing this time. You're a mediocre one, Mr. Grinch. Those expecting Cumberbatch to add a little Doctor Strange to his take on Dr. Seuss will be sorely disappointed as this animated take on the Grinch buries its kid audience under a blanket of bland. There's your blurb. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone coming in hot. The Grinch is one of the movies we will be reviewing this time on Cinephile. Thanks, as always, for checking us out. Busy time as you got lots of movies to go through today. Uh, no lines, Dan, although Ben Lyons is playing a big part in the Cinephile because his friend Gabe Polsky, who set him up with his wife at the Cannes Film Festival, that story will be revealed. Uh, their documentary is called In Search of Greatness. Gabe is the director. Uh, ben is the executive producer. Go to InSearchOfGreatness.com to find out where you can find the documentary, which is um, one of the best of the year and an excellent film. So Gabe is going to join us and talk all about that. No lines, Dan. Do we have an everyman, Dan Stanzik? Yes, we do. Excellent. And Rick Pastor, do we have an in defense of? No, but I do have a review. Excellent. Uh, as always, go to iTunes and give us some love. I rank my movies at a four beliefs. Please rank them at a five stars and leave a review. I checked a recent review, stinging rebuke of Rick Passmore's role on the podcast, but that's all right because you know what? When Ricky asked for a raise at some point, I'm going to go listen. Or the raise where he's making zero money, I'm going to go Passmore. Unfortunately, look at this with look at this jobber here. Let's say, wait, who who who's talking bleep he, about he, me? He said he likes me. He likes Dan Stanzik. Although it should be noted, everyone likes Stanzik because he is the everyman. So he's a yeah. populist by nature. So he everyone everyone loves Stanzik. He likes Dan a lot, and he goes, I I don't care for the. Uh, how, I don't know how he phrase it. I think he said pompous attitude or long winded stuff from Passmore. Yeah. I feel like I would be getting the pompous. I know. Right. One guy's doing a written review with highfalutin verbiage and passports just coming from the heart about like these schlock movies he loves. The guy's like, ah, very pompous, grandiose passport. I'm like, wow. Grandiose. Yeah. I'll put that on my resume. <laughs> you better come in hot. Now, now, by the way, the review today, I want to be especially grandiose just to come back at this guy and see if you can upset him. Uh, the screeners are still coming in. I've got eighth grade, although my entire crew has seen eighth grade, so... That's all right. I'll pass along uh, some other movies when I get them. I mean, I'm going to watch them myself and then burn them and never watch them again. But I'd love to go out to the movies, of course, and it's so good to see a movie in a theater if you get that opportunity, especially when it's a small independent film, which may not get a lot of love, or maybe because the Oscar consideration it will. And I'm talking about Can You Ever Forgive Me? That's a new film from Melissa McCarthy stars and Richard E. Grant, who is scene-stealing as her barfly. The story is this. It's based on the true story of Lee Israel, who was a writer of some prominence. She had a couple of successful novels, but then wasn't able to publish any more biographies. And what she was focused on, she couldn't get anybody interested in. And, and her agent had said to her, listen, you're an a-hole. Like, let's make this clear. You're not a friendly person. You're not a nice person. So even if you have a book that's good or worthy, no one's interested in it. You either have to have an incredible subject, which you don't have, or you have to be a nice person, which you are not. 
So you can complain about John Grisham getting all these fees, but this is the way it's going to go. So she rather stumbles upon this idea, and the movie sets it up beautifully that she's one of these caustic cat women. You know what I mean? This is not fun-loving Melissa McCarthy. This is not warm and generous that you normally see. She is a crank who lives with her cat and is miserable. And one day while doing some research, she comes upon an old letter from a famous author and uh, realizes she hatches this plan of what if I forged letters from long-dead authors and then sold them for uh, a price to memorabilia? So soon enough, and this is actually uh, an example of what a good writer she is because she has to emulate these long-dead writers by reading one of their notes or novels and trying to imagine what they would write in a letter. But the plan goes well. She sells it to uh, one memorabilia collector, gets hundreds of dollars, okay, sells another one. And as so often happens, whenever you're involved in any sort of crime, well, once you get away with it once, let's keep getting away with it. And so then, the, of course, the story knows you're eventually going to be winning waving your head and eventually going to get caught. But the real strength of the movie is, is McCarthy's performance because, listen, prior to this, the best thing she's ever done was uh, crapping in the sink in Bridesmaids. And since then, she's done a lot of movies where I think just kind of were repetitive of her persona being big and bombastic. And now this is a real character while not giving up the humor, because even though this is a drama and the headline's going to be Melissa McCarthy's going straight, uh, so to speak, in terms of dramatic theater, but the character still has humor to it. And because she's caustic, as I said, she's got a real sarcastic bite in her line readings, which I think as a comedian, uh, she's able to deliver. And this isn't the first example of a comedic actor showing they can be a dramatic actor. Steve Carell's done it, Jim Carrey's done it, and so on and so forth. So as she's developing her plan, she meets up with her old friend Richard E. Grant, who, if you're wondering who he is, he's one of these actors you see in these movies all the time. He was in Bram Stoker's Dracula. He was great in Scorsese's Age of Innocent, played Larry Lefferts. Um, he was in L.A.'s story. I loved him with Steve Martin. He had a real stretch of the early 90s. And he's one of those guys who, as I said, always pops up. But he's never had a role as big as this. And it was so good to see the movie because it's a real uh, showcase, not only from, from Melissa McCarthy, but also Richard E. Grant. And the first scene he comes in, you're like, bam, you already got it. Um, you know, he's <laughs> he's this guy who's just looking to get after it. And the hero of Melissa McCarthy, as you said, I, he becomes her bar fly, um, you know, her confidant. He's the only one who knows about the scheme. He starts helping her with the scheme. And his performance is a real joy, and I'm really happy that it looks like she's not only going to get nominated for Best Actress, but he has a really good chance at a Best Supporting Actor nomination. It's nice when these actors have been acting for 30 years. They finally get nominated for the first time. So the strength of the movie is the performances, the characters of these. If you want to know the true story, I'm sure you can Google Lee Israel and find out what happened to her. Uh, Ty Burr wrote a great review in the Boston Globe. He spoke of how New York now, it's so gentrified, and you, know, you have to remember a time where people were moving out of Brooklyn rather than moving to Brooklyn, and this movie is a good reminder of 1991, it's because it's the return of that great movie archetype, the mean, nasty New Yorker. We haven't seen them in a while. It appears they don't exist anymore, but McCarthy really nails that in Lee Israel. So check out Can Never Forgive Me. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. Mike Golick Jr., of all people, after I saw the review, also tweeted that he really loved the movie as well. It's definitely up Dan Stanzik's alley. Yeah, real quick on Melissa McCarthy, and forgive me if I've asked you this before, but had a little debate with some cousins and friends months ago. You know how there's like A-list, B-list, whatever celebrities? Yeah. Where would you say Melissa McCarthy is? Oh, I think she's A-list because she can open a movie. Her movies make millions and millions of dollars. If you give her a script of, you know, high concept comedy, boom. Okay. It, I yeah. said like B-plus, but okay. No, no, I, I think she's A-list. If you just looked at surely the track record of her movies, you're like, all right, even when they stink, they do make a ton of money. Uh, and by the way, she has tried a dramatic chops before. St. Vincent is a movie I liked a lot with Bill Murray. So people keep saying, oh, it's the first time I've ever seen a dramatic movie. Well, she actually did it before, and St. Vincent's a really good movie. But this is the first time as a lead role, uh, so good for her. Second movie to recommend is What They Had. 
Sounds familiar? Well, Robert Forster's in it. He spoke about it on Cinephile. Hopefully you can check out the interview if you haven't listened to it. But the movie is about a family dealing with Blythe Danner. She's the mother suffering from Alzheimer's. Robert Forster is the uh, long-suffering husband. And Michael Shannon and Hilary Swank play the siblings who are trying to figure out what the best recourse is for mom. So the story starts out with mom having an issue. She keeps leaving the house, disappearing. So Michael Shannon plays the dutiful son. He's there in Chicago calling Hillary Swank, the daughter, to say, hey, you got to go up here. I need him help. We're going to figure out what to do. So Shannon's saying, we got to confront Robert Forster, put her in a home. Of course, Forster, the husband, does not want to do that. All he has in his life is his wife. He can look after her, even though she's disappearing, and clearly her de- uh, uh, condition is deteriorating. Uh, but he is very staunch in that he wants to be the one to take care of her, and the Hillary Swank is caught in the middle. You've seen stories like this before in terms of Alzheimer's and uh, family strife, but I thought it was particularly well done. The first two-thirds, there's a great scene between Hillary Swank and Michael Shannon in which they're fighting the way siblings must do, and it's never an easy situation as to figure out what to do with parents. And even though it's a heavy watch, uh, there were some moments of levity along the way. Even my, my moment of disappointment, though, is that the final third of the movie isn't as strong as the first two-thirds. The first two-thirds feel like a four-Maple Leaf movie, one of those old classic kitchen sink dramas, great cast. You know, Academy Award winner Hilary Swank, Academy Award nominee Michael Shannon, Academy Award nominee Robert Forster, Blythe Banner. Like, you got these, these great actors really tearing their teeth into a really good script, which is co-written by Nicole Holofcener, who's a really good writer and director. She did a movie I love with James Gandolfini and Julia Louis-Dreyfus called Enough Said. But the final third of the movie ends up letting, excuse me, Elizabeth Chomko wrote the script. I'm thinking about another film. Uh, but what ends up happening is that the story kind of, I don't want to say it goes paint by numbers, but it actually, it's the rare film that needed a little more length. You know, it's a, it's a 93 minute movie. It's the rare movie that probably should have been about two hours because the first two thirds sets up what to do with mom, what to do with mom, what to do with mom, fighting between dad, fighting between son, fighting between son and daughter. That eventually the final third, you know, it kind of ties up the loose ends. And I think in a movie like this, if you're going to tie up the knots, which you probably have to have some resolution, I would have liked more time given before we got to that point. So it's the rare movie that I think should have been a little bit longer. However, I do recommend it primarily for the performances. Our boy Michael Shannon, not nearly as psychotic as he is normally, this time playing more of an everyman guy. Like I said, a dutiful son. But um, it's a good movie. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. And Robert Forster is fantastic. I mean, God, I, I just got him on the podcast because he was available, and I want to talk about Jackie Brown. But he was right. I know he was very praiseworthy of the film, but he was right. What they had is a movie worth watching, so hopefully all of you can go check it out. Lastly, before we get to our interviews of Gabe Polsky, a, a twin bill here for you, if you will. Orson Welles, one of the great filmmakers of all time. A new movie on Netflix and a new documentary on Netflix. Which one do you want first, Dan? You want the movie or you want the documentary? Let's go movie. Movie is a disappointment. It's so misshapen and so unfocused and so all over the place. I can't properly recommend it. Although Ryan Johnson, the director I saw, just tweeted. He goes, it's one of the best movies. It's an absolute masterpiece and... You know, he directed one of the Star Wars movies, and he was like, this should be seen for years to come. And I'm like, listen, maybe that's the opinion of a director because they're so in love with Orson Welles. And there's moments of Welles' bravura, certainly. And John Huston plays the lead. Speaking of Robert Forster, the, if you listen to the Robert Forster interview here in Cinephile, he does a John Huston impression. Then go watch The Other Side of the Wind because John Huston plays the lead role. So I, I had even more enjoyment from the film because I kept picturing Robert Forster doing an impression of him. And the best line of the movie is when John Huston near the end says, you can kiss my sweet ass. But the movie, as I said, is so misshapen because it's two stories. So the one story is about a director on the last day of his life. Is he playing Orson Welles? Maybe. That's John Huston. And he's got Peter Bogdanovich there who's playing a young director who does impressions. And there's a female film critic who's probably based on Pauline Kael. And they're all kind of surrounding him in his final day of shooting. And the other half of the movie is the movie he's making, which, as the documentary makes clear, is like an imitation or a parody of those 
European art house dramas that were so in vogue in that era, like an Antonioni film. And so the problem is that the stuff with Houston and Bogdanovich and the Pauline Kael S character is fine, um, because as I said, it's, it's watchable and it's interesting. But then he cuts it up with scenes from the movie, and the movie makes no sense. And I understand that's the point, is that this director is making a movie which is so ridiculous and so uh, trying hard to court that art house audience. But as a, as a viewer, you just go, this is, this is just too all over the place. Like, Rick Passmore may take something from it. I think Ricky might enjoy it, because it's on Netflix, and so why not give it a watch? But the documentary is outstanding. It's one of my favorite movies of the year, my favorite docs of the year. It's so good. And anybody who knows me knows how much I love uh, documentaries or stories about the creative process. That's why the Larry Sander, uh, Gary Shandling doc, excuse me, I enjoyed so much from Judd Apatow. But this is about Orson Welles and his life, and particularly this film. And it's got one of the great titles of the year, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, which Peter Bogdanovich said Orson Welles said. Another uh, actor says, no, he never said that. It just sounds like a good line to say. I like the fact Morgan Neville did the documentary and says, well, we're making it the title of the movie, which I also want Dan Sanders to say at my funeral when I get killed by a bus in a year. They'll love me when I'm dead. That was Virk's belief. He said it every day of his life. He would say on the podcast, they'll love me when I'm dead. It's true. I was ahead of my time. But Wells' story is amazing. For those that don't know, of course, you know he did Citizen Kane. He was 25 years old. It's the greatest movie of all time. But to think as a person, whatever you are in life, whatever your occupation is, if you peak at 25, what the rest of your life must be when you're chasing that. It's almost like a drug act. You're chasing that high that you can never actually get again. You have no chance of ever getting there. And and the studio, the studios, studios, excuse me, plural in Hollywood, punished him for it because the fact he had a certain amount of chutzpah to him, he had a certain amount of arrogance to him, he was going to do things the way nobody else did. Okay, he'll get punished then. Magnificent Ambersons, which is an excellent uh, family drama, very influential. Wes Anderson loves it. Royal Tenenbaums, he says, is in very much in part based on his love for the Magnificent Ambersons. The studio recut it because it just didn't like Wells' version of it, and they massacred the movie and ended up being a disappointment. Years later, Wells was able to recut it, and that version is the one most people can see now, and it's a great film. Touch of Evil is a great B-movie. Wells plays the villain in it. The, the opening shot, when I was at Ryerson, Billy Nobles, my great teacher, he was said something about great tracking shots. And right away, I was like, well, you know, Goodfellas, obviously the Copa shot. And he's like, who here has seen Touch of Evil? And I'm like, oh, yeah. He's like, the first, the first shot of Touch of Evil is amazing. If you'll forgive the fact Charlton Histon is playing a Mexican in the movie, which is a bit of a reach, but Wells as the villain is amazing. Just this, this corpulent, sweaty sheriff. He's so good in the movie, and the directing is awesome. So on the basis of those three movies, Wells is great. There's other movies. F is for Fake. I know Criterion released an edition of that. They say they love. There's other films of his that now, you know, if you look at it, I think over time people will maybe enjoy them more. But those are the ones that are major ones. So Other Side of the Wind is a movie he's trying to make in the late 60s, but he couldn't get any money. It's crazy to think this guy's one of the great filmmakers of all time. He can't get money to make this movie. He's got John Huston starring. And you see clips of him talking to reporters saying, John Huston, he goes, <laughs> he says, if heaven exists, I should definitely get admittance into the pearly gates because I gave John Huston the best role of his life in this new movie called The Other Side of the Wind. And they're like, Orson, he's like, I could have played the role. He goes, it's based on a director. I could have done it, but I'm giving it to John as a gift to show how magnanimous I am. And they're like, do you think this is the best movie you've ever made? He's like, no. My next movie is going to be the next, the best movie I ever make. He's a funny guy, good sense of humor. And the documentary shows not only him filming the movie, but also talking about the reporters and agonizing over it. And Peter Bogdanovich, who became a good friend of his, who in his own right was an acclaimed director early in his career, but never matched that. His best work is Elliot on The Sopranos. Uh, but he never was able to match his work of those early movies that he directed. And he ends up becoming a good confidant of Wells. 
And so, again, if you have interest in movies that are about the creative process, if you have any interest in Orson Welles, you should definitely check out the Love Me When I'm Dead, the documentary currently available on Netflix, along with the film, The Other Side of the Wind. And it's not solely about the making of it. There are certain sections of it, but it does a good job of explaining Orson Welles' life. I mean, really tortured family life. I didn't realize what happened with his parents. Uh, so it's a very interesting watch. I'm giving that four Maple Leafs. I'm giving The Other Side of the Wind two Maple Leafs, just because it is interesting at times, but I don't think it's uh, nearly the epic we were all hoping for. And lastly, The Grinch, um, I think Peter Travers' review pretty much nailed it. I mean, it's fine. I'll give it two Maple Leafs. Good time waster. Good time to catch a nap with the kids. Uh, colorful animation. Benedict Cumberbatch is fine. He's not exactly Jim Carrey. If you know the story of The Grinch, you know exactly what happens. And that's about it. Gabe Polsky now, In Search of Greatness. Check it out. In search of greatness.com is where you can find one of the best documentaries of the year. Find out where it's playing near you. Oddly enough, it's titled In Search of Greatness, and it comes from documentary filmmaker Gabe Polsky. Kind of to join us right now on Cinephile. Gabe, thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Adnan. First and foremost, my boy Cabby, the star, because last Friday in Toronto, I'm filling in for Stephen A. Smith, and Ben Lyons is frantic, says we need a host in Toronto. I said, my guy Cabby's the best. He was going to go to the documentary screening anyways, and then he went and saw it along with DJ Bennett. I hope it was a great crowd there in Toronto. He told me Mark Shapiro was there, the Blue Jays vice president. He talked a lot about analytics and creativity. Just tell me about that night back in my hometown first. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. You know, obviously I was really excited to bring it to Toronto because, you know, of Gretzky and, you know, just the whole country and you know it was it was great and you know the fact that Shapiro came was was interesting I didn't know that he was in the crowd until your until Cabby pointed it out but uh he was he was very intrigued he was kind of scratching his head afterwards and uh you know it seemed like he was in some kind of deep thought but uh yeah he started talking about how you know that you know basically superstars are kind of self-evident and you know you don't really use data there's it's you know you can't really analyze that the superstars right but then he was sort of talking about how the guys below that that you know you kind of need this data he was saying to to kind of because the the difference is so small and and you know that you kind of have to look to the data to understand who's going to kind of survive in the league, basically. That's what he was saying. Well, that's interesting that that would be his take on it, because you're right. What part of it, and the, the, what's great about the documentary is that you picked guys in Wayne Gretzky and Jerry Rice and Pele. They're the focus of this documentary, of guys who do not look like superstar athletes at first glance. And what's most interesting about Gretzky, and you know this, having been you know, a college hockey player at Yale, and I know this, being Canadian and knowing Gretzky's story as well as anybody, is that when they do those strength and conditioning tests, Gretzky was always last. Like, it wasn't like he's middle of the road. Like, no, no, on the Oilers, he yeah. was terrible at doing push-ups. He couldn't do any of that stuff. And yet, as he explains in the documentary, with skills like anticipation and creativity yeah. and famously parking behind the net, he was off the charts. Just explain yeah, a little you know, bit about that. It's amazing, that. though. I mean, I, I don't, I'm sure you know this, though. It, it's almost like a rule of thumb. Like, the stronger, it, it, it's strange. But, I, you know, in college, I felt the same way. It's always the guys that were last in these strength tests that were the best players. It's, it's, it's really strange, you know. And, and, and the reason, you know, because these guys, the guys that, that are last, they, they rely on other skills and, 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 like you were saying, anticipation and, and just talent. But talent doesn't just, like, come out of the blue. It's that they were, you know, uh, practicing those, those particular skills, you know, the creative skills, the, the, the showmanship, all those things that, that are just not, you know, lifting weights don't, 
do anything for, right? And uh, it's always the opposite. But yet, coaches they're so you know adamant that you you know improve your your strength and, and conditioning and this and that. Um, you know, but it's not really the skills that you, you need necessarily. I mean, everybody needs a certain level of base strength, you know. But yeah, that's that's a very it's a very interesting kind of fact, you know. One of the best things that your documentary teaches is that you need to have creativity in sports, and there's way too much rigorous teaching being done. Almost, it's, it's far too disciplined. Like Gretzky says, you know, I would just be out there skating and just you know messing around, playing shinny, and just learning things. Jerry Rice again, playground. Like we need to do more of that stuff. It should be less structured, less drilling it into kids' heads, and particularly. You know, you think about with soccer, I guess with Paley, you could say, well, yeah, isn't that what guys are doing? But but when you look at what these coaches are doing, Gabe, and you know this now firsthand from like a, a fundamental youth level, it's so structured, it's so regimented, and it's so year-round that you go, why in the world would any of these kids want to play any of these sports because they turn them off so young by these coaches? And it's interesting, when Gretzky mentions that he had good coaches, he talks about his dad, and he said, well, how much did he know? And he goes, he knew enough, which is a really good way of saying that most dads, yeah. they, they know their kids, they know them well enough, they can teach them enough, right? Exactly. I mean, you kind of nailed her. You kind of hit it on the head. I mean, you know, that that's a, sort of a problem with the, they're saying with USA Soccer that everything's so regimented and structured. And you know, really, if you look at where all the talent is coming from, like Brazil and and all these other places, these are kids that are playing on the street and and just messing around and and really kind of developing their improvisational skills and and showmanship and and you know all those little little skills that you get when you're just sort of messing around and and playing one on one against somebody it's not in drills you know that's not where greatness comes from you know so it's it's just allowing kids to enjoy the sport and 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 experiment and fail and use their imagination and and creativity that's where greatness comes from not you know and so you know, it seems like our society, and look, listen, I don't have kids of that age, so I'm not seeing it firsthand. I will because I, you know, just had one. But, you know, from what I'm hearing and seeing and parents is that it's becoming insanely structured and the pressures are getting higher and higher. And, and, and parents want to feel like they have control over this, that they're doing the right thing, and but they're looking in the wrong places, you know. And, and I think the more pressure you put, the worse performance you know kids get turned off you know because it's just it's just not fun and 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 really greatness is is about having fun if you look at all these athletes they're 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 they derive the most fun from from just playing you know what i'm saying it's not being forced to do anything he's we're talking with Gabe Polsky. His uh, documentary is called In Search of Greatness. Go to InSearchOfGreatness.com and find out where you can see it because it's really worth the watch. One of my favorite parts, Gabe, and this is such a cool um, directorial trick you did, is when Gretzky's getting mic'd up, you know, it's kind of soft focus, and you subtitle what he's saying, and you're, I don't know if it's you or somebody who's with you is asking, do you want to know the questions? And he goes, no, I'm better when I don't know the questions. I keep thinking about that. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. And I th- you know, the people who are the most gifted I find in life uh, – Maybe I'm making too grand an extrapolation because certainly research has to go into something and preparation is important. But people who are off the cuff are best at that. What did you take just from that little exchange? Why did you include it in the documentary? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what he said, basically I asked him if he knew what the film was about even because, you know, I spent, you know, almost seven months just trying to get Gretzky and, you know, talking with his management that I thought for sure he knew what it was about and, and, you know, all that. Because why would he sit down with me? You know, um, he doesn't need to. So, 
it was very surprising when he said, I don't know anything and I don't want to know what it's about, really, uh, before he sat down and interviewed me. And, and it just shows that, listen, the, you know, the more he's basically said, listen, I don't want to think about anything. So that that shows kind of inside the mind. And, and it wasn't meant to necessarily be in the film, but I, I felt that it really kind of brought you behind the scenes about how these guys think inside their head that they, you know, there's a level of just sort of improvisation, like you're saying off the cuff, that makes not just the performance better, but you're not in in your head. You're 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 in the moment, you know, and that's what the best performers can do. And they don't like they enjoy that moment, and they it has to be kind of natural and spontaneous because that's when the best performance happens, not when it's sort of planned and rigid. You know, we you have to react in the moment. You can't, you don't have time to think when you're playing, you know, and I think the same is with interviews. You should just sort of, you know, there's a level of spontaneity. We enjoy that when, you know, when somebody's stomped or, or just, you know, there's a sense of naturalness to it, you know? Right. It's why you appreciate that. I didn't tell you the questions I was going to ask you. Look how you're flowing right now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Something else about Gretzky, and he's, you know, he's got the typical Canadian humility we all have. You know, he keeps mentioning Lux as a night, a great coach in Glen Sather. It was the perfect timing, which is true. Hockey at that time was very freewheeling. He was surrounded by great players, Messier, Curry, et cetera. You could score 8-2, and that was just a, you know, an average result. And, and, he, and he points out luck. And maybe in today's game, it would be a lot harder. As you and I both know, the game of hockey is different, not only as offensive as in years past. But greatness is always there. And the case of Jerry Rice... I look at the numbers he put up, and I think if Jerry Rice is playing now, he'd be even more ridiculous. He's the greatest wide receiver of all time. He might be the greatest football player of all time. And yet, as he says in the documentary, I was never the fastest. I was never the strongest. I was just a great route runner. I was so precise with my routes. And again, you can say luck. He had Montana. He had young Bill Walsh. But greatness does survive. Don't you think Rice would be even better in today's football? I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, clearly, I mean, listen, it's more offensive, you know, so he would just put up better numbers, you know, but it's, in, it's interesting that Jerry, you know, I always, I, I listened to a lot of his interviews and he just, you know, just, it, I'm sure you agree with me, but he's always just talking about his work ethic and just that he just worked and worked and worked. But in the film, he does bring a different side to him where, you know, he, he talks about how he just loves the, you know, the performing and, 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 you know, putting on the greatest show ever. He talks about how he he loves the way he you know he paid a lot of attention to how he dresses and just just this showmanship, this creativity. You know, and he it came out in the film, but he just he loves to harp on just this work ethic, which we all know and sort of. But I, I guess he he just does not want to. Um, what's the word? He 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 doesn't want to come off of that idea that he he just he just will not accept that anyone even worked close as hard as he did you know and i guess he just wants to keep hammering that home uh, you know but but the, he he did jerry was a beautiful athlete to watch i mean he did you know in those years just amazing things creatively on the football field and it was just beautiful to watch him play do you agree absolutely and i think that you're right he had that kind of elegance that transcends whatever yeah. generation he'd play in Speaking of elegance, I'm an enormous Roger Federer fan, as anybody who knows yeah. me knows. I'm wondering, did you have any chance of trying to get Federer for the documentary? And another guy Cabby and I texted about is Steph Curry. Speaking of a guy who's unassuming and yet creative and brilliant and a guy you wouldn't yeah. expect that. Any luck with yeah. either Federer so, Curry? Yeah, so two things. You know, Federer, I, I did talk to his manager uh, a few times, and it just didn't, you know, he he's sort of so 
focused during the season, and they just those guys never stop. You know that I just he just said it's just impossible basically to get his attention. So I tried, you know, and then um, and so I tried to include, you know, I included Federer and Michael Jordan, Serena, and these people. I tried to really include them in creative ways because clearly, I mean, listen, he Federer is kind of undeniably the greatest tennis player now, and uh, you know, and he's just so. He embodies the concepts in the film, the sort of beauty and creativity and, like you said, elegance. And, uh, you know, as far as Steph Curry's concerned, you know, I really kind of kept it a rule of thumb that I wanted kind of undeniably the greatest of all time in the in the film. Um, you know, like, like you know, Rice in his position and Gretzky and, and uh, Pelé. So with, with Steph Curry, it's kind of, he's clearly incredibly creative and, and really embodies the themes in the film, but not, not, he's not the greatest yet, but I do appreciate what he's doing and, and think that he's, he brought again, a new dimension to the game and, and it sort of used his weaknesses and just really was able to, you know, bring a new element to the game and be creative and really, you know, selling out buildings. I mean, performing, he's a, he's, he's a showman. He's, he's unbelievable. He does things that, you know, that you sort of double have to double take. You can't believe, you know. Talking with Gabe Polsky, his documentary is called In Search of Greatness. Go to InSearchOfGreatness.com to get all the details there. Um, curious, Gabe, this is an interview because I love the fact, you know, you put yourself in the dock, not obviously in a way like Michael Moore would say, but you hear your questions. You can have uh, in Red Army, your great documentary, you and Slava Fatisov are going back and forth a little bit. He gives you the finger at one point. You concluded that in the movie. Was there ever a moment with Rice or Gretzky or Paler that you asked a question that, Maybe they didn't care for, but they just didn't know how to react to, or just kind of a, a different exchange you weren't expecting. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of a strange guy, a little bit, you know. Just my my nature is a little bit strange, and you bring that up. I mean, I when I started directing docs, I I didn't necessarily want myself in there, and and you know was sort of timid and shy. I didn't want you know, to draw attention to myself. But then you know, basically one day, one of the editors I was working with at that time kind of tried a couple interesting things and you know at first I was like this is no way like I sound like an idiot and you know I don't want this in there and was embarrassed but then you know I screened it he said you know why let's just screen it and and, and people started laughing and thought it was kind of funny and interesting so I kind of realized that it just it makes the film better in some way and not just that but like you know sometimes it's just the way people react to a question that 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 sort of draws out something unique and interesting about that character, you know, and and it's not, and so you need the question in there as well to kind of illuminate this side of their character. And so I just started kind of allowing that to happen a little bit more, and, and people found it funny. I mean, a lot of times, you know, when I was a kid, people thought I was funny. I, I didn't even think I was funny. You know, there was laugh at things I said, but I didn't even like want it to be I didn't try it for it to be funny I just it was just weird or you know what I'm saying you just yeah. I think people sometimes just realize that that they're what like Werner Herzog it's it's kind of a funny example like I think he's the most hilarious guy and I've worked with him and and spend time with him but I don't think he knows he's funny he doesn't think you know what I'm saying he doesn't think he's funny but he just is because I don't know the way he sees things so it's an interesting 
Does that make sense? It does. And now you've opened up a can of worms with Werner Herzog because Grizzly Man, I remember I thought it was hysterical. And my friends yeah. are like, what do you mean? I go, no, it's, yeah. it's such a funny movie, even though it's, you know, the story, the subject line is terrifying. Tell me about working with him because this is amazing to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just so interesting because he's just such a different guy. And, like, you know, his viewpoint, his point, you know, the way he thinks about the world is so kind of different and, and, and you know, obviously wise in, in, a, in a lot of ways and, and just super interesting. So, like, everything he does, he he does it with this sort of unique perspective, you know. So when you sit down with them and, you know, have dinner or whatever, hang out, you know, it's just super interesting and, and you know, I don't know, weighs on you or, you know, allows you to kind of also see the world a little bit differently. It's just it's just a rich a guy with so much experience and, and, you know, has dealt with, has seen so much in his life and, 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 and put himself in situations that, you know, are super interesting, and that that that's why he's such a great storyteller because he he really he really you know has seen a lot because he's put himself in the in those positions to see a lot. You know, so it's just it was awesome to work with him on on Bad Lieutenant, and then he sort of you know stayed. We've stayed uh, you know friendly, and and he's been kind of incredibly supportive. To me. The crazy thing about Bad Lieutenant, and I love the, the Keitel Abel Ferrar original, is that Werner Herzog said he wasn't making a remake, which I, I never understood them. Why yeah. did he call it Bad Lieutenant? Yeah, I know. Well, that was us because, you know, initially, yeah, it's kind of like, I know it sounds crazy, but like James Bond, where it's just, you know, each one would be like a different, you know, just, it's, it's kind of a similar character, but in a different world, a different story, you know what I'm saying? And, and, uh, so you're not remaking the first one. You're not like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that's true. It's just true. another story of of this guy, this bad lieutenant, you know? Yeah. And I kept thinking, so that's like, how we developed it. And, like, you know, people, well, what do you call, yeah, I mean, it's bad lieutenant, but it's a different story, you know? Right. right. It's going to eventually be evil lieutenant. He just gets really nasty. It's like it's just he goes to a different level of badness. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a great college hockey player at Yale. When you win the Academy Award for In Search of Greatness, and we have you at ESPN, and the hockey department is, as you know, John Bucciagras, Steve Levy, me and Linda Cohn. Can we get a game together? And if so, you know, if we're going to pick teams, can we just make it clear that you and I are on the same team? That would be great. I'll just feed you the puck. You stand in front of the net. Are you, are you pretty good? I'm decent. I, you know, I haven't skated in a long time. And as you know, the key is I tell everybody with hockey is skating. Like, you know, everybody that I've ever met in my life, if they can actually play, it's because they can skate. And those that can't skate are no good. So my point in this is I used to be much better, but I can still skate. So in, in essence, I still got the wheels, Gabe. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll find you. Yeah. So that would be fun. <laughs> we'll have Melrose coaching. What do you, or do you want Melrose to play? What do you think would be more advantageous to us? I don't know. What, what's he like? He was a tough guy, right? I was about to say, you know what we should do? If it was you, me, and Melrose would be good because, you know, I can skate. I know you're the best player on the team. And then Melrose, because I chirp too much. So when I'm chirping Bucci or Levy, Melrose will come in and just clean up the mess. Yeah, that will be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to that. <laughs> have you ever come to ESPN, by the way? Seriously? Uh, I know I have never been there. No, right, you gotta come. Seriously, open invite. Whenever you want to come, you gotta come because I know obviously you're a big 
sports That would be awesome, yeah. yeah. And you've had these sports-themed documentaries. Not only Red Army, but In Search of Greatness. Go to InSearchOfGreatness.com and check out a terrific documentary. I know it's gotten rave reviews. Scott Feinberg, a Hollywood reporter, sent me a message saying how much he loved it. Wanted to have you on the pod. So, great stuff, man. All the best. And I know Ben Lyons is always indebted to you because he met his wife, Mariah, I believe, at the post-party for Red Army. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he keeps telling me that story. I didn't really do that much. But, yeah, we had a great party <laughs> in Cannes. It was just... Uh, it was rocking and rolling on the on the water there, and uh, there was all sorts of people there. I guess Ben ran into his future wife there, and so I guess he's always indebted to me. <laughs> so. I think that's absolutely accurate. The great Gabe yeah. Polsky. Thanks so much for the time, man. Thanks I appreciate a lot, Adnan. It was a pleasure. All right, so that was Gabe Polsky. Dan, don't you think Gabe Polsky, interesting guy, right? Yeah, you know, he's not trying to be funny, but people think he's funny. <laughs> Very interesting. The cadence was a little different. Yeah, because, like, I'm always shot out of a cannon, and, and most people, I feel like, when they do these interviews, they're junkets interviews. Like I, What I liked about him is he's kind of got a, it's not a drawl, but it's a deliberate style of speaking. Yeah, definitely the opposite of you, who talk, you talk faster than anybody I know. No, no, I think the fastest, you don't know Weimer. She works in sports. And if you knew her, she's the fastest person I've ever heard. Passport that is, that is very true. <laughs> she's unreal. Like, I was like, wow. But I do talk fast. Our guy Greeny's up there as well. He can also talk very fast. No, yeah. but still Weimer. Yeah. Uh, Passport, what did you take from Gabe Polsky? Have you seen Red Army? Have you seen In Search of Greatness? Are I have aware? not. No. I have not gotten a chance to watch either of those, but uh-huh. uh, I will I will definitely check out In Search of Greatness. Obviously, being a sports guy, yes. working at ESPN, I feel it might be required viewing uh, for us, but I will definitely check it out. He seems to have his finger on the pulse from what I've seen from trailers and stuff like that Yeah, of really kind of uh, breaking down, especially – Nowadays, how sports have changed, especially for youth, and it's that—that's the one thing to me. It seems like how the the greats that we've talked about, Gretzky and uh, Jerry Rice and and whatnot, uh, their preparation versus how the greats currently prepare, and the different dynamic and, and generational changes of how sports have evolved in who do you deem as a great player. Yeah, and one of the best parts of the doc, Gretzky says, like, as a kid, he goes, I would just skate outside. Like, I would just be just, my dad would just set up a net, and I just, I played for, like, six hours. <laughs> like, that's where I just, I came up with this stuff on my own. I didn't have structure, I didn't have drills. And the point you make about preparation, <laughs> at one point, Gabe asked about going over a game plan. He goes, oh, I don't know. I was I was playing ping pong until 6.55. Like, <laughs> I was just screwing around. Like, are we going to go? I'm like, all right. Like, that, it's a, Gretzky's, like, the, the, the far example of a guy who clearly was just relying on instinct, it feels like. I know he must have been working hard, but he does not make it sound like he was looking at, all right, Patrick Waugh's scouting reports. He's like, all right, let's do this. Can we talk about your hockey skills? Because we were talking yeah. in here as you're selling yourself as this great hockey player. I did not sell myself as a great hockey player. He goes, are you good? And I go, I'm not bad. I go, the key is skating, and the key, I haven't skated in a while. I said you're probably like Happy Gilmore without the slap shot or the physicality. <laughs> is that fair? Not fair. And I'd be better than any of you. That's clearly, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would destroy all of you, so already I'm, I'm good. I've been ice skating one time in my life. <laughs> Dan says also not a proficient skater. No, I'm uh, actually banned for life from a uh, arena in Syracuse. <laughs> Wait, what happened? Uh, I'm not going to tell the story. I can't do it. to tell Charges still pending. There's a statute of limitations and on this. Banned for life. I doubt Polsky will ever come up here. But Bucciagras is a legitimate great hockey player, and he's also in great shape as well. All right, one other interviewer here for you. Uh, speaking of sports, again, a sports-themed documentary. Peter Axman, who I had the pleasure of meeting at Sundance, reached out to me and said, have you heard of Free Solo? I said, I've heard of it. I can't wait to see this thing. And definitely you want to see it on the big screen, which I did not have the opportunity to do because time is tight. So I watched it on my uh, 
iPad. But seriously, if you have a chance to watch it in the theater, the story is this. Alex Honnold is a crazy man. He's a mountain climber. He actually climbed El Capitan in Yosemite, which is 3,000 feet, and free soloing, for those who don't know what that is, that means you do it without a rope. Yeah, Cat was a part of the action. Stephen A. Smith, when we interviewed him on Friday, in fact, and John Vilma was also part of the interview. So you'll hear Vilma in there as well. But Alex Honnold, Free Solo is the documentary. He climbed a mountain and he did it without a rope. He did it with his fingernails and his feet and guts and guile. And here's the interview for your enjoyment. Free Solo is the name of the doc. And now, a thought from Geico Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to click on the banner ad entitled, You Won't Believe What These Child Stars Look Like Now. Be dissatisfied and kind of sad about how the child stars look. And now your computer is plagued by incessant pop-up ads. Oh, this can't be good. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 clickbait minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to GEICO. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance. A real pleasure to welcome in Alex Honnold, who is an absolute animal. The movie is called Free Solo. It's a documentary. It's available in theaters everywhere now, uh, coming from National Geographic. And Alex is an absolute animal for this very reason. He climbed 3,000 feet, El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, without a rope. It's called Free Soloing. Hence, the name of the doc is called Free Solo. And we welcome him now. Alex, seriously, I watched this documentary uh, through my fingers. I was so terrified for you. How in the world did you do this? What in the world is the appeal of free soloing for you? I mean, it's it's a big question. I mean, free soloing is sort of one aspect of climbing, and, and I've loved all kinds of climbing for the last 20 years. But I think that part of the appeal of free soloing is just that it's uh, it just demands more from you. It, it requires you to perform at a, at a higher level to some extent. So it's kind of a nice – it's like a test of climbing. That's one thing to be, to be you know, attracted to the idea of it. And like you said, it's a real extreme level of climbing. But – it's one thing to do it, another thing to actually be filmed. How did the idea of being filmed uh, by Jimmy Chin and his team come about? Yeah, so the film, uh, so they actually reached out to me, uh, Jimmy Chin and his co-director, uh, his wife actually, Chai Vassarelli. Um, they had just made the film Mary, which is a great film about mountaineering, and, uh, and I'd seen it and I really respected their work. And so they approached me about making a film, and as a professional climber, that's a huge opportunity. I was like, that's great. And then it was me that, that wanted to make it about El Cap, mostly because – you know, if someone's going to make a feature film about you, it should be about something significant. And to me, the only thing worth making a film about was El Cab. And then the more the more practical side of it is though that um, that as a professional climber, I mean, I have a lot of obligations to for sponsors or to go into events and things like that. And and El Cap was such a big challenge for me that I kind of needed an excuse to clear my schedule for a while. And and making a feature film was something that I could take to all my sponsors and be like, oh, you know. I can't do any work for the next six months because I'm working on the movie. And, uh, <laughs> Smart and, man. And, yeah. Honestly, it's like, yeah, people talk about the motivations for the film, but I mean, that kind of was one of the practical sides of it. I was like, well, this is a great cover to work on this big life project that I've been wanting to do forever, but it's like hard for me to get the time to work on it myself without some kind of good excuse, you know? When you were doing this, what was the most agonizing part or the most agonizing moment? Of the, of the whole filming, everything, what was the most agonizing part? Well, the hardest part of the filming was definitely, you know, sh- shooting interviews or shooting just like having the camera around all the time and feeling like there's always something in, in your space a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I think that when you're talking about the grind, I mean, the real grind was all the training, like the physical training. Like I was going climbing all the time. I was doing extra pull-ups, you know, fingertip pull-ups and things, um, core exercises, stretching, you know, all the basic body maintenance. But I think that with climbing, it's maybe a little bit more fun than, than you know, other sports just because you're not, like, in a gym just yeah. working hard. You know, you're actually out in the mountains kind of playing, like, doing the thing that you love to do. But certainly 
I was very fatigued for a very long time. And so, you know, during the climb, you were fatigued. No, no. I'm saying like the six months, the six months. Got well, it. I mean, because I was kind of preparing for two years ahead of time, but for the six months directly ahead of the actual free solo, mm-hmm. I was going pretty hard. I was training maybe 35 or 40 hours a week, which, um, is kind of a lot. I mean, it's a lot of hours of physical effort. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I was just tired. You know, it's, wow. it's a lot. How about the personal focus of the story as well? Showing you and your girlfriend, you guys still together? Uh, yeah, we're still together. Uh, yeah, the relationship is great. You know, obviously making a film about a relationship adds a little strain and, and the release of the film has, you know, been, uh, been an experience for both of us, but another relationship is great and we're living together in Vegas and, and things are really good. We continue here with Alex Honnold on Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. Alex, your personal relationship is examined in the film and I loved how honest it was and the fact that you're very clear about the fact that nothing's going to get in your way. And has that been a detriment to relationships? Absolutely it has, because you can't have anything holding you back. And there's been other mountain climbers who have said that to you. have said, listen, a relationship will hold you back. You, you should probably be single when you do this, because to put a fine point on it, you've seen people die. How many people throughout the career of mountain climbing, I don't see you're going to be good friends of theirs, but you've seen die 20, 30 people. And, and how much of that does that affect you in your personal life? I mean, that, yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, seeing... Um, seeing accidents and being around climate accidents. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely hard. Um, but I mean, I actually kind of reject the idea though, that you have to distance yourself from, from relationships in order to perform well. And I think that's, that's one of the core elements of the film is, is Sonny sort of my, my girlfriend, Sonny pushing back on that whole idea and like, well, why, why not have both? Why not have a good, healthy relationship and still perform at a high level? And, um, and I think that that's something that you sort of see through the course of the film is that, that ultimately I am able to do that. And, and I think honestly, it's better for my life in general. But, I'm with you because I often hear people aspiring, whether it's sportscasters or musicians or actors saying, well, I've got to just focus on the music or the art. I can't be held back. But I'm with you. I think a relationship helps to inspire one. I think it gives you more yeah. uh, fulfillment, right? Yeah, I kind of agree. And I mean, just on a practical side, in a lot of ways, having a healthy, stable relationship makes the rest of your life so much more, uh, I mean, yeah, stable, I guess. Um, you know, like I find that I eat better and I sleep better and my, my training is more consistent. You know, basically my life is healthier. And so I think that having a, having a good, healthy relationship like helps in a lot of ways with performance. Free solo in theaters nationwide. Couple more for you. Uh, the most gripping part I thought was when they show you going through the steps, like you're on the rope, obviously, was you're practicing, so to speak. Yeah. And you got chalk outlines, et cetera. And there's that one move you got to do. And you say, well, if I karate kick it, that'll be effective. But if I miss it, I'll die. Yeah, yeah, that's, like, that's like, fair. Like, like, think about, like, for anybody who, <laughs> there's nothing you can have in life to say, well, this is probably the practical way to do this, but if I miss it, I'm going to die. What, it, can you just explain to me why your thought process has to operate with that? Because in the movie, you don't do the karate kick, correct? No, no, I do yeah. the karate well, you kick. Do the, you do do it, yeah. right? But if you miss it, you're going to die. No, 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 no. Uh, maybe you're confused. So there were two ways. One of them is a jump or the karate kick. I mean, if, right. you, if you fail with the karate kick, you, you would die also, but, that's right. but the jump is a little more dramatic because if you jump, you know, basically while you're flying through the air, it's like you're going to die unless you catch. With the karate kick, it feels a little bit less extreme. But, um, but yeah, I mean, when you asked what I was thinking about that, I mean, the key is to do all the thinking while I'm hanging there with a rope. You know, to spend the preparation ahead of time so that when I'm actually doing the climb, I'm not thinking about anything. I just execute. I just perform. You know, it's like, yeah, like a gymnast doing their routine or something. You just do it. And lastly, the exultation, the, the emotion, like just seeing the smile on your face. Cause if I may say, I don't think you're the most outgoing guy. I think you, you kind of let everybody in, but you're focused on the job and you're not the most ebullient. But that emotion, like when you're finally there, you, you climbed a mountain, man. Like you climbed Yosemite. What was that like? 
Oh, it was, it was amazing. I mean, you know, in the film, I say I was delighted, but I, I mean, you can see the big, uh, you can see the big smile on my face on top. And honestly, I had that smile for, you know, a week or two at least. And, and even now thinking about it, I start to smile. I mean, it is, it is a climb that I'm very proud of. And, and anytime I think about it, it, it still makes me pretty happy. And certainly anytime I see the end of the film, I'm, uh, pretty happy. Well, and here's one other thought too, just the amount of suspense of this movie. Cause for, if somebody says, well, I already know what happens. I heard you talk to Alex, so obviously. But but when you called it off, like I, I said, oh man, like how much doubt was there to say, you know what? It's in the middle of the night, and you see Jimmy Chin's reaction going, "Hey, he's calling it off. It's not going to happen." Like the, you didn't, ha- and they kept telling you, "Listen, you don't have to do this at any point. You can say no, right?" Yeah, well, and that's the thing with free soloing is that really nobody wants you to do it. Like you know, I was the only person that wanted to to do this climb. Everybody else thought it seemed crazy, and that I probably shouldn't, and that it seemed too risky or too dangerous. But, uh, you know, I mean, and, and free soloing should be a personal choice. I mean, because it is my life at, at, at risk, you know, I mean, it should, I should be very confident with it. I should feel comfortable with my choices. Uh, well, you have my adulation and admiration, not only for the climb, but also for lying those cameras in there. Because as you bluntly said, you know, if I die and my friends see this, that would be kind of weird. So Alex Honnold, <laughs> free solo is the documentary. Check it out. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, obviously I lead a charmed life here at ESPN. Incredible family, wonderful job, and great friends like the great Michael D. Benzani, who is in the house. <laughs> Rare to have a guest review here. We've done it a few times. Yep. Rob Lemley reviewed a soccer movie. Mark Simon, his favorite documentaries. Yep. Uh, Mike Gullick Jr. recently reviewed Mandy. But you're the first guy ever we were having back for repeat appearance. So strong. Was, uh, by the way, Jake Del Moro killed his Gaudi review. was great. But you're the only one ever who we brought back a second time because the Thor review was such hot fire. Yeah, um, well, the Thor was fantastic, and I absolutely loved it. But, Dan, just a heads up. I'm coming in hot on this one, so get that bleep button ready. Like, I don't know. I might let a couple great. fly. Not Thanks. Sure. So preface, like, I'm a Venom fan. I grew up in a Spider-Man household. I loved Venom. I loved Spider-Man. I loved everything about it. But I read the reviews of this movie. I knew it was up, right? So I decided to get some candy to get me through this movie. But Adnan, there are not enough milk duds in the world to get me through this movie again. Like, I could have somebody feeding them to me like a Roman emperor, and I wouldn't go back. Um, the movie itself, like, it's not funny. It's stilted. It's just chopped together. It's... Eddie Brock is a journalist, and it's sure, like give us whatever story there is to this thing. Okay, so Eddie Brock is a journalist, but he's like a bad boy kind of journalist, I guess. And it's like an eighth grader's view of journalism, right? Because the main thrust of the movie, the reason he like the whole action starts is he goes and he interviews this guy. Uh, what's his name? Riz Ahmed. Yeah, Riz Ahmed. Yeah, Very guy. good in it. He's he's has this like casual kind of sociopathy that's just amazing in it. It's like oh. a Silicon Valley bro. Nice. Loved him in the night of. But like the whole the whole reason he gets in trouble is he starts doing this gotcha interview with him as if it's like being broadcasted live on the six o'clock news and he's Tom Brokaw, but he's not. Like it's just whatever. Okay. So um it's just it's very bad. And Tom Hardy is bad in this movie. I don't know how he's bad in a movie, but he is. Um zero things happen. He has no plan, much like the screenwriters who wrote this movie. And um I I would not sit through it again. And I love superhero movies. I love everything about them. And I would stay away from this one. How many Maple Leafs do you give in this movie? So I, I do movies out of 20 to 80 scale, you know, baseball. Um, this is, <laughs> this is, this is, <laughs> That's tremendous. this is Billy. Keith Lawson where is applauding. <laughs> yeah, 20 to 80 scale. This is He's Billy the Butler's only one in our audience. <laughs> like, this is straight 20. I would never go see it again. Wow. The best part of this movie is the Captain Marvel trailer at the beginning. <laughs> 
last point here. Tom Hardy is bad in the movie. He's really, like, he's not funny. Oh, and I forgot to mention this. Venom, uh, so I don't know if you know anything about the comic, but there, there's a whole... My brother would know, but yeah, I <laughs> brother, brother probably would like He might movie. think this is the best movie of the year. <laughs> the symbiote has its own distinct personality that attaches onto Eddie Brock, and they have this awful Laurel and Hardy routine. Okay. It's like, who's on first, except if it, it wasn't funny and about murder. And it's just, uh. it's just really bad. And, um, yeah, it was a two hour, it was just a slog. Uh, it's just like poorly planned, poorly put together. And it really just needs Spider-Man. Like, that's it. It's just the Venom isn't a main driver, I guess. Good as a supporting character. Yeah. In the comics, he's great. I mean, and a- Abbott and Costello should stay in it. Yeah. I mean, don't update it to this <laughs> world. That's what you're telling me. The 20 to 80 scale from Mike Benzani. Thanks, Bonds. You got it. Thank you. He's just an average man with an average, average life. life. And his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost. Playing to my strength. Dan Stanzik is. I thought it was a little, little much. Every man. We really gotta update that open. I saw Randy the other day. All he wanted to talk to was Chappaquiddick, which I haven't seen. And then I said, I want to get to the business at hand, which is, can you update some of these opens? But just when you see him next, go, hey, how about Chappaquiddick? And get into a conversation about that. And then go, hey, can you get rid of my every man open? It's kind of nauseating. Good plan. <laughs> All right. Uh, he also big free solo guy. He loves that stuff. Yeah. Big surprise. Yeah. Memory is a strange thing. It doesn't work like I thought it did. Memento. We are so bound by time, by its order. But now I'm not so sure I believe in beginnings and endings. Any other guesses? No, it's not Memento, no. Arrival. Oh, wow. The 2016 <laughs> sci-fi film starring Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, and Forrest Whitaker. Directed by French-Canadian Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. De- oh, Denis. Okay. <laughs> this guy. Denis Villeneuve. Is it Denis Savard or is it Denis Savard? Denis Villeneuve. I just want to get it right because i got to say it's it again. Denis, Denis, Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Now it's worse. Every time I need to say it, I'm going to point to you and you're going to say it. Denis Villeneuve. Who also did Sicario and most recently Blade Runner 2049. The film is set in present day and centers around 12 alien spaceships that have landed in different places around the globe. Denis Villeneuve and cinematographer Bradley Young described the look they were going for as, quote, dirty sci-fi to indicate that something like this could happen on any given day. Adams plays a linguist who teaches communication at an unnamed college who is recruited by U.S. Colonel, played by Whitaker, to figure out two things, what they want and where they're from. Adams is taken to an army compound set up next to the alien vessel that landed in the United States, more specifically in Montana. There she works with a theoretical physicist played by Renner in communicating with the aliens who look nothing like any other aliens you've seen in movies and TV shows. These aliens look more like a couple of octopuses, but because they only have seven arms, they're referred to as heptopods. (laughs) Trying to make sense of the heptopods proves to be a grueling process. Speaking words and decoding sound gets nowhere, but Adams and Renner make great strides with writing words on a whiteboard and deciphering pictograms spewed back at them. The seemingly nonstop work starts to take a physical and emotional toll on Adams. She needs boosters from the army doctors, and she starts seeing a string of both joyful and painful memories. In the compound, there are video screens from the other 11 sites as the world appears to be working together to figure out what the aliens want. And if I remember correctly, one of your Canadian friends is in one of those scenes. Gurdip Alawali, who also is in Molly's game with Aaron Sorkin. He's, he's a terrific broadcaster. He was also in Arrival. Okay, so the world's working together until the heptopods convey what most interpret as a threatening message. There is no unified response from the 12 sites aside from the fact that they all go offline and cease working together. China wants to use military force. They issue this ultimatum. Other nations prepare to follow suit. So it's a race against time for Adams to prove that something was simply lost in translation. 
As much as the film is about science fiction and aliens, it's really more about communication, collaboration, language, and a new interpretation of time, which elicits a quote from Albert Einstein. The distinction between the past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. It's a movie that makes you think. There are palindromes, terms like non-zero-sum game, which I'd never heard of, and and philosophical questions that are hard to answer. There is also classical music that's heavy on the violin and the classically pretty Amy Adams, who was robbed of an Oscar nomination. I give the film four stars and encourage everyone to see it. Just, he loves Amy Adams. Amy Adams and Anna Kendrick. Those are the wheelhouse of Dan Stanzik. What is non-zero-sum game? What does that mean? It's like where everybody can win. A zero-sum game is there's one winner and everybody else is a loser. A non-zero-sum game. The example they use on some site, I don't know if it's Wikipedia or not, but I was looking at it the other day. It's like... Say it's like a husband and a wife. The husband wants to go to a football game. The wife wants to go to the opera. The husband would rather go to the opera with his wife than go to the football game by himself. I don't know if I believe that. And the wife would rather go to the football game with the husband than go to the opera by herself. So it's a not they both get something by collaborating. I like it. And palindromes I love. That's where the word spelt the same way forward. What's your favorite? Uh, well, it's the Flyers when a hockey thing. Yuri Laddle was the defenseman, L-A-T-A-L. And Joel Otto, great hockey player, O-T-T-O. Do you have like an actual word? Or? No, I just like those two I names. go race car. A race car is a terrific palindrome. On that note, Denis Villeneuve's arrival. <laughs> Through much of this podcast, I've seen Danny was on his phone for a little bit. And then I saw uh, Passport was immediately feverishly looking up the review. So what exactly did the guy say about you? Did you I couldn't look find it because I, I don't have it. iTunes. But I immediately saw you. You're so I'm like, I'm like, okay. okay, I want to read more about this. I'm I, interested. I'm intrigued. I'll find it. I promise. I will, I, will, I will take criticism very well. And if I take really, really <laughs> pointed, harsh, mean criticism, yeah. I like that as well because I think it's humorous that someone feels that strongly about what I do. Yeah, I'll find it for you. But go ahead. Give me a review. Anyway, uh, no in defense of this week uh, because I've kind of been very heavily sedated by Red Dead Redemption 2, the new game out on... Uh, Xbox and That's PS4, and it's been, and I almost did it in defense of how cinematic video games are becoming, but I decided against it because I just didn't feel like writing it because I spent so much time playing it. However, I did get to go see Bohemian Rhapsody oh. in IMAX uh, last week, which uh, now up here you can't see it in IMAX. The Grinch has kind of taken over the IMAX theater, which is a, a shame as far as I'm concerned, um, but... Let me start with the high points of the film because they're existent, but they're few and far between. Rami Malek is brilliant. I believe you said you have him as like number one on Gold Derby to win the Oscar right now. I got him number three. I got Bradley Cooper at one. I've got Rami Malek getting a nomination. He'll get a nomination for sure. But there are times in the film when I'm thinking, no, that's Freddie Mercury. That's not an actor. That That's tremendous. Um the actor that plays Brian May, Willem Lee, looks exactly like Brian May. The actor that plays Roger Taylor, uh, Ben Hardy, looks exactly like Roger Taylor, circa the 70s and, and early 80s. Um, the soundtrack, obviously, it's Queen. It's fantastic. It's well used. Uh, the sound design is amazing. The Live Aid performance at the end of the film, no surprise what it is. I can't really spoil it. It's 30 or 40 years old almost. Uh, the They built the entire set. From scratch at Wembley. The stage is the actual stage. The crowd is CG, and that's pretty blatant once you see the overhead shot. 
Uh, but the stage itself is the exact stage replica from Wembley at Live Aid back there in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that whole sequence is tremendous. I'm sitting in the theater about wanting to sing out loud like I'm actually in the concert. It's such a good sound design and such a good sound mix. And it's almost replicated exactly from that Live Aid source, but I believe it's re-recorded. Um, and it, it's just, it's a fun movie to watch. I'll give it that. It's it's a little long at almost two and a half hours. I want to say it's like two fifteen, but that's about where the good ends, and it kind of uh, plays a little bit with history, creates some revisionist uh, history in the uh, script, and you can see why uh, Sasha Baron Cohen was not uh, Freddie Mercury, and Rami Malek was picked up to play the role because Brian May and Roger Taylor are also executive producers on the film, and definitely did not want to tell the true story because maybe to them the true story wasn't as fantastical and wasn't as uh dramatic as some would make it seem but at the same time uh there were a lot of just blatant inaccuracies within the film such as how queen met and how uh, freddie mercury got his start with the band uh his age reveal uh definitely didn't play out in real life, the way it played on the movie. In fact, it's actually chronologically inaccurate. It didn't happen when it happened. Um, and a lot of the drama they built up was just false and made for drama. So when it comes to just making making something up just to have the storyline, uh, I think it falters there. I But at the same time, I still think it's a fun movie to watch. I think Rami Malek's performance is worthy of a star boost on its own. I give it two and a half. At the end of the day, I think if if you don't have if you don't have as charismatic a lead as you do in Rami Malek and even and even the other Queen performers and Brian uh, Willem Lee and Ben Hardy and their fun portrayals of those characters of those people, uh, I think it really falters. Even though you have such an a fantastical band to begin with, with such a storied history as Queen, who created these great hits and one of the best parts in the movie as well, and we've seen it in the trailers. And it's not a spoiler because it's it's one of the big poster poster moments of the film is uh, Mike Myers' cameo as the fictional EMI uh, record executive. I, I just saw him, Alec Baldwin is a show, the Alec Baldwin show mm-hmm. now, which is great. And he interviewed Mike Myers. He talked about that. He said they had to get him because, of course, Bohemian Rhapsody is so critical in Wayne's world. Mm-hmm. And that's the song that Mike and his buddies would play in Scarborough, Ontario, as they go to Maple Leafs games. So they said that it was very tongue-in-cheek they put him in there. But how was he? The, the way it played out was fantastic because even the friends I was with, I recognized it right away. I've seen enough Mike Myers movies, him in heavy makeup, to know, like, okay, that's Mike Myers. He's doing his British accent. You know, okay, this is the, this is the part where they're trying to sell Bohemian Rhapsody to him, and it took them a minute to realize because he does a very good job. Like even in heavy makeup, sometimes Mike Myers can just kind of disappear into the ether uh, of his disguise. But the the dialogue shared between him and Freddie Mercury and the uh, rest of the band and them trying to sell them on a night at the opera is like, no, I want rock and roll. I don't want this. What is Bohemian Rhapsody? What's a rhapsody? <laughs> like he's actually asking, and Freddie Mercury, he's like, it's an epic poem. And uh, with all the bravado that you would think of Freddie Murphy, which Freddie Mercury, which actually wasn't, you know, again another factual inaccuracy that he's not a uh, he wasn't as flamboyant and and bravado uh, driven as he was on stage. Uh, He was much more shy and reclusive in real life. He definitely had a lot of insecurities, Um, but. He gets on there and he, they're selling. He's like, and it's six minutes. It's too long. They'll never play it on the radio. And all this goes on. And, you know, we've seen it in the trailer, the joke about his wife thinking six minutes too long, feel right. sorry for her and all that stuff. 
But the one real catch joke of the uh, of the whole exchange is like, yeah, you want something that kids can just crank the music up and bang their heads to, and it's not gonna be Bohemian Rhapsody. And of course, Mike Myers, famously in Wayne's World, cranked up the music and banged his head to Bohemian Rhapsody back in 1991. Yeah, it feels like Queen fans really like it a lot. And we'll end with this on the next cinephile. I'll have reviews, big Oscar movies here: The Favorite, starring Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz, Barry Jenkins, if Beale Street could talk, Steve Carell, Timothee Chalamet, Beautiful Boy, and a Canadian movie called Tiger. All that more coming up in the next podcast. Here I do have the review. This is from Hot Lunch Man. Once again, go on to iTunes and give us a review. I rank movies in a formula beliefs. Rank us at a five stars and give us a review. Here's Hot Lunch Man. Love Adnan's interview style. He seems to surprise his guests with the depth of his knowledge and his questioning. Stancic, spelt correctly, provides a good pop culture counterbalance to Adnan's inner geek. Passmore is a bag of hot air. His reviews are rambling nonsense and the show <laughs> And the show would be better without his interjections. So he didn't call you pompous. That's the good news. No, but a bag of hot air. At least I would have preferred pompous. That, at least it yeah. expands upon his vocabulary a little bit. <laughs> well, that pastor's response in the next NFL. Too hot, lunchman. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.